Welcome back to Two Nobodies, everyone. Rupesh is here again. Got a wonderful guest to introduce you to. Before I do that, um, this is a topic that is going to be really cool. We've talked about technology disruption. We've talked about sustainability. And I think like the, the person that we're talking to today uh, kind of blends those two. His name is Brendan Smith. I know Brendan from, from way back when I used to train this guy every Saturday, Sunday morning. He was the best, by the way. Um, Brendan, welcome to Two Nobodies. Really glad to have you on the show. And just looking forward to catching up. It's been way too long. So thanks for joining me. Thanks, Pesh. Yeah, really great to be here. Uh, really grateful to be invited. And um, yeah, number one, looking forward to just catching up on a personal level. And I'm sure we could talk for three or four hours, but oh, we probably only have a little less than that. So, you know, happy to dive in. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, I remember, man, those, uh, I don't know if it was Saturday morning or Sunday, but Sunday, I... Sunday morning. Sunday morning. That's what I thought. And <laughs> I, I would pull you in, um, I feel like it might have been eight or nine o'clock in the morning and... No one's at the gym on Sunday, especially at Waterloo. I mean, nope. no one's there, just me and you. But you came, you came every single time. Like, I, what I loved about you was your discipline. Like, like, yeah, and I don't remember in the early years, um, whether you started or not, but still, you just, you put in the work, you put in the grind. And like, I, I'm sure that's translated over your work, but like, tell me about, uh, yeah, just, I don't know if you, did you actually really enjoy the training at the time or did, was that something that you're... Yeah, I mean, it's sports has, has always been, you know, until very recently, I would say a pretty central part of my life, you know, not mm. just in terms of staying in shape, staying focused, but just really kind of being a guiding principle and, and sort of a a learning factor behind how I kind of conduct myself elsewhere. I mean, yeah. it didn't start at Waterloo, it started back in... In high school, and even earlier, I was in a track and field program mm. uh, back in Kamloops, BC, and I had a coach there. Uh, you know, track and field being very different from basketball, very much an individual sport. Yeah, I had a coach there named uh, Derek Evely, and he went on to coach the Canadian Olympic team, uh, UK Olympic team in the future. He's coaching the small town, you know, Kamloops Children's Track and Field Club, and he's a guy who. Um... Oh, can you hear me still? Sorry, I think my internet cut out for a second there. No, that's okay. Uh, if, it, if it if it if it cuts out, you'll just come back. It's recording. Okay. It's recording your feed, so it'll it'll it'll. Pass okay. Well. Yeah. Sorry. So yeah, I was back in the Kamloops Track and Field Club. This this coach went on to coach the Olympic team. I was coaching eight, nine, ten year olds, and um, just the way he would sort of expect the same out of us as he did later those Olympic athletes, I think, mm -hmm. really instilled a sense of responsibility and um, work ethic in us that sort of. I think drifted outside of sports for me into my, my work life, my, my school academic life as well later yeah. on. Um, but that translated through to Waterloo and, and everything that kind of followed there. Yeah. Did you, did you, so you played track, but I don't know how long did you play basketball for? Then? Yeah. Ever since elementary school. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was doing okay. basketball camps as early as age five, six. My dad used to play with us and then that yeah. kind of just like translated over into school and then, uh, club teams and finally, uh, college ball. Yeah. And when you came to Waterloo, just because um, you you stayed in Nanotech, right? Yep, exactly. Yeah, and so um, I mean, just being a student athlete is challenging in itself. But a program like that, I think it was pretty fairly new program at the time. Am I, am I right about yeah, that? Yeah, we were the fourth or fifth cohort, and I think to your point, a really kind of interesting anecdote I like to tell is that leading up to Waterloo, you know, I, I yeah. wasn't recruited to go there. I was kind of a walk on oh, okay. last minute decision to, to try to join the team. Yeah. 
um, and, you know, worked out well. I, I was, I had been told by most people leading up to it that, you know, you can't do both the intensive academics and, and the varsity athletics at the same time. Like, it's not going to work out well. And so I, I had my heart set more on, you know, dedicating myself to the academic program because yeah. I didn't have any aspirations of going to the MBA or anything sure. like that. Sure. Um, so I had to kind of think about my future. And then my old, another mentor of mine, one of my old basketball coaches from high school, sent me this kind of long-winded sort of poetic email. Mm. And he was always kind of an advocate and uh, a voice of confidence for me. And he was just mm. saying, like, you know, if you want to do it, you should just try it. This might be your last chance to play at, like, a high, you know, organized competitive level. Yeah. So I really took that to heart and I, I went for it. Uh, and, and just to kind of cap off the anecdote, I mean, the interesting thing is that, as you know, we had a co-op program at Waterloo. Mm -hmm. So... For anyone who doesn't know, that's just generally interspersed work with academic programs. So schoolwork, schoolwork, uh, term on, term off. And what playing basketball meant was that I wasn't able to leave Waterloo for a lot of those work terms. So yeah. some would think that would be sort of restrictive. But it ultimately really forced me into to doing some uh, re academic research on campus with some uh, professors, some mm -hmm. PhD students who were there. And that in turn led to some publications, which I think ultimately got me into grad school. It was a very mm -hmm. strong factor in that that acceptance of, of mine down to grad school so sort of like that little butterfly effect you know by playing basketball yeah. not only does it instill that kind of focus and that uh you know that hard work ethic but it also i think actually opened up a lot of opportunities for me at the same time so i think my takeaway there was like you want to think on the positive side and, and think about the doors that are going to open for you um, whenever you have to make these kind of tough decisions when you think about, uh, or if there are newer student athletes entering that sort of space, what would your, I don't know if you reflected on that time, but like in terms of achieving balance or trying to excel during that period of trying to balance, you know, athletics with, with schooling, what would your, what would your advice or what, what's your thoughts yeah. on that? I mean, I think really in, in life there's, I mean, this is drastically simplifying, but there's kind of three facets, at least in, in the college life as I saw it. There was for me athletics, academics, and then kind of the, the social and sort of, personalized joy that you get out of out of life in general and those things can overlap and i think the message for someone considering being a student athlete in a tough program uh, is just that you want to be able to find joy in in all of those facets and so if you you're not loving the school you're not loving the you know the athletics every day and it's inevitable it won't always be great right uh, but you need to find people you need to have people in those streams of your life that that bring a lot of joy so I had some really, you know, a few, but really close friends in, in my academic program. So we were, you know, hanging out every day, working on stuff together. That's critical, right? You can't be alone in, in your academics. I found that out in grad school later on. Um, but then in, in basketball, you know, had amazing people like you, had a lot of teammates, uh, coaches who were really instrumental in, even though it's a grind, you know, practicing every day, two hours a night, traveling every weekend. If you like the people you're with, I mean, <laughs> it's cliche, but it, it's true, you know, yeah. it, it's it makes it not not nearly as difficult so was there was there a sacrifice that you felt like you were making though to to find balance and, and what would you say that sacrifice was yeah absolutely so you know part of it was social um okay. you know i like to say that you know and a lot of guys on the team were in tough programs but mm. not everybody and people mm. took some some things less seriously than others as you yeah. know speaking yeah. of sunday morning training yeah, sessions yeah 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 <laughs> um but I think my sacrifice, as I saw it, was that, you know, I, w I wasn't the best basketball player I could be because I wasn't able to, like, you know, stay after practice for an hour and, and work on my free throws or, you know, hit some shots or whatever, hit the gym extra times. I wasn't the best student I could be because I wasn't, you know, studying on weekends all the time. I was off playing basketball. 
And so I think that's the main sacrifice, but at the same time, it worked out very well. And I think if you kind of embody the discipline that is required to do it, and then really enjoy the times when you have kind of free, which are sometimes few and far between, you can still eke out that like aspect of relaxation at the same time. And it's a little bit sweeter even. So it's definitely, you know, you got to know you're going to be sacrificing, but for me, at least it worked out, you know, very well, ultimately. Did you play all five years or four years? About four and a half, because I, I think this yeah. is after you had graduated. Yeah. Gosh, but like I, I went over to Europe for a co-op term. Oh, okay. For my final term. It was something I was really interested in doing. You know, it was a sacrifice in that I left the team for half a year. Um, it turned out to be uh, Coach Kieswetter's last season. Didn't know this at the time, so I actually missed the last uh, half season that he was coaching. And uh, that was that was a tough decision, but I had kind of gone to Waterloo. I really loving the idea of the co-op program. Um, mm -hmm. I really wanted to really love international travel and kind of testing myself out in that sort of arena. So there was an opportunity to go spend eight months in Austria and, and work over there. And I, it was, it was tough to turn down. But the, the interest in nanotech, like, so, I mean, new program, I imagine like that in itself is a bit of a risk, right? Like, I mean, people look at programs and that established faculty and all that, but just mm -hmm. what was the, what was the decision and what, what was the path that sort of led you into that field? And I guess, yeah. I guess even just, after that, just describe to folks what the heck nanotech is. Yeah, I, mean, some people so, probably yeah I can start with that. And that's really what drew me in. I mean, I so I finished high school, uh, graduated in 2007. I actually went down to Brazil for a year for an international exchange program. And so it was down there that I was kind of thinking about, I hadn't applied to any schools yet. I was thinking about universities. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. That's part of, part of the reason why I went on exchange, which was a great experience. Definitely recommend that for anybody that kind of any stage of their development. Um, and I was looking at programs and, you know, I thought, okay, maybe I'll do chemistry, maybe I'll do biology. Everyone was a bit too narrow for me. You know, I was just kind of broadly interested in, in sciences and the environment and sustainability, which I'm sure we'll get to. Mm. Um, and then nanotech is, it's really just, uh, you know, nano just means small, right? So it's small technology. And that doesn't really imply any sort of specific field. It kind of cross cuts through, you know, chemistry, chemical engineering, electrical mm. engineering, uh, you know, physics, material science. So that was what I think was attractive was sort of the broadness of it and sort of the applicability, you know, the technology piece sort of applies or implies that you are not just studying things, but you're also building things and applying that material and technology to real world applications. And we didn't get that far towards doing that in the undergraduate program, but I think it was a good primer to do that later on in life and, and in my career. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Um, yeah, and then did the didn't the nanotech building like wasn't it built in a certain a really special way? Like I I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I heard this from far, yeah, but like yeah. it's like it was in, it was built so that you know didn't, there weren't any vibrations or something like I don't know. I could yeah, be wrong. That's, but. that's true, and um, I'll tell you a quick story about that too because I think it's a little funny. But um, yeah, exactly that. So they have to have special foundations. Either they do some kind of floating thing with some shock suspension absorption, oh, okay. or they have um, you know very heavy granite slabs that they kind of put down in the foundation to limit the vibration. Reason for that is when you're you know doing microscopy and looking at single atoms on the nanoscale, the smallest vibration of a truck going by you know 100 feet away can totally throw off that microscope. At the same time, when you're kind of fabricating these devices that are you know the transistors that we have in our phones and computers and electronics. We're talking about a you know five to ten nanometer gap, which is the size of a molecule, basically. So, when you're kind of building those things, they don't necessarily build those at nano at, at the nano building, but uh, you know, getting close to doing that, so you really need that vibration isolation. But the funny thing about that is, the day I went to visit Waterloo before I decided to come with my with my parents, 
they had the um, the groundbreaking ceremony for the nano oh, building there. Yeah, yeah. And then for my whole five years that I was there, it was like under construction, and that was my program, right? So we wanted to get in the building. We were excited. We were we were situated in like the basement of some other uh, dingy mm. lecture hall, like no windows for four years of lecture. You know how that goes in, in undergrad. Um, and then finally, in my last term, I think we had like one class in the building, so we got our feet in the door. Then I came down to MIT, I won't get ahead of myself, but for grad school, I thought, oh, they'll have all these great facilities like already built. The exact same thing happened. The first year I was there, they broke ground for a new nanofabrication oh. building. It was like right beside my grad school office. And so it was like jackhammers and, you know, digging for like four or five years. Yeah. But now we actually work there for our company. So I'll, we'll okay. get to that later. But uh, yeah. I got my, got my revenge there a little bit. That's funny. Uh, was Waterloo then ahead of its time, would you say? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it's hard to, to say without, you know, having gone to all the campuses, but I think yeah. in a couple of ways. So I think the nano program, you know, now technology had been around for a long time already. It was sort of one of those things that's always like, it's the future, right? It's 10 mm -hmm. years out. I mean, it's a bit of a misnomer because it just means like pushing the limits of all, all scientific and engineering fields to the very mm -hmm. small scale. Mm -hmm. So that's a constant, you know, um, progression of doing that in all areas to, to gain advantages for specific mm -hmm. reasons. But you know, so they, they kind of foresaw that and they, I think the program was pretty progressive and advanced for, for what else was out there. And I think also the co-op program specifically was, mm. I mean, you probably know this, they were like one of the first co-op programs in the world and I think still one of the largest in the yeah. world. Yeah. I mean, I would attribute that, as I mentioned before, you know, doing some grad school level research, uh, doing some kind of, I, I did some government work with Environment Canada my first term. Mm. I got to do some private work in, in industrial settings, and that was all really instrumental into in what I later went on to do. So mm. I'd recommend the co-op program to anybody. I think it's an amazing, amazing feature that Waterloo has to offer. Yeah, and I think you participated in co-op as well, right? I did, yeah. I, I did it uh, through kinesiology. And, I mean, kinesiology was more science-based at Waterloo, and um, so the opportunity is probably... Uh, um, might not be what people might think, like you're not doing a lot of, you're not training with athletes, you're not mm -hmm. doing a lot of physical stuff, but um, a lot of ergonomics was, it was a big focus there. So yeah, the, I mean, it prepared me for, for job, having those job skills, interviews, all that sort of thing, which is mm -hmm. value. So, Very cool. Yeah. Um, with, as you said, with the nanotech, like the applications of it are, are you know, uh, enormous. Um, why start to focus? Or I mean, you said you had a bit of this passion or interest in in the environment and sustainability before even coming to Waterloo. Um, you go to grad school, and I don't know what was your focus at grad school then. Yeah, I can tell that story. So it's, first of all, it's kind of funny. Like I, I was pretty fixated on going doing a master's at U of T or something. You know, mm -hmm. UBC back at BC where I'm from. Um, and I was looking at all those options, talking to some professors, you know, about their research and had some offers to join some groups, you know, different institutes around Canada. And then when I was in Austria, we were, I was meeting up with some of my friends from Waterloo who were also on co-op in Europe and we were doing some hiking and stuff. They were talking about writing this like GRE exam, which is like, equivalent to the SAT, but for grad school. And I was like, why do you want to write that? No schools in Canada require it. <laughs> and they were all applying to U.S. grad schools. And I was thinking, I hadn't thought about it. I didn't think I was good enough to get in to, you know, you only want to apply to some good ones. You don't want to the mediocre there's lots of good schools in canada so there's no point going down otherwise um so i thought okay i guess maybe i should try that and i applied to, to like mit berkeley and caltech i think because i googled the top five or whatever just to see what i should apply to yeah i only got into mit so mm. it was a very easy decision and i say only but like you know obviously one of the better ones they're all yeah. great so i didn't really have a tough decision and then as soon as that happened just decided to kind of come down um but 
I think your initial question was a bit different. So like, how did it, how did it work when I came down to MIT is what you're asking? Yeah. I mean, how did that, how did that, uh, folk, how did like, I guess understanding what that work of, uh, at MIT was, but then yeah. just the focus then particularly on sort of, um, you know, the environment and sustainability and all that. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it's, it's sort of one long, uh, sort of trajectory that's led to where I am today and mm -hmm. you know, I will probably get through it but you know when I first came down I'd always been sort of passionate about two things I think in sort of the in, in my career path or kind of development uh, one was was definitely kind of the the science of thinking about things from sort of the atomic scale up mm -hmm. so, you know how, how are materials actually arranged on the molecular level the atomic level and how does that affect their their properties and application on the macro scale you know, that you and I interact with uh, mm -hmm. all the time and society interacts with? And the other piece was more kind of interest in the natural world, you know, a lot of hiking, you know, outdoor stuff, camping, mm -hmm. snowboarding, biking, etc., climbing, and just really loved being outside. You know, my parents took us out on a lot of camping trips as a kid and, mm -hmm. and obviously being very well aware of sort of the catastrophe that we're mm -hmm. continuing to go through now. So those two things merging, it kind of felt like a natural fit that I wanted to work on something in the sustainability or clean tech space. Mm. So clean tech, clean technology, really sustainable energy kind of stuff. When I got to MIT and material science department, um, there's sort of like a period for the first few months where you're sort of speed dating uh, with different professors that you could possibly work with. It's a bit different than Canada in that regard. We already kind of have your professor set up before you arrive. Um, and so a lot of people were doing great work in material science on solar cells, photovoltaics, uh, batteries, which is still obviously a very hot area. And I can kind of came back to that in a way. But to me, it had seemed like those those spaces were sort of very populated already. So a lot of trust in people doing that great work. And, you know, I don't think I was going to make much of a dent in it. And so looking around, there were some groups, uh, including the one I ended up joining with a guy named Professor Jeffrey Grossman. And he was thinking about water filtration. And, and different kind of filtration membranes for water purification. And that kind of struck me as, you know, something that's obviously critical, you know, for a lot of reasons mm -hmm. around the world, mm -hmm. for um, society and the environment. And something that not a lot of people are working on. I kind of had the, the inkling, and when I told people I was gonna work on this, they said, well, isn't that already a solved problem? And it's really not, we can talk about it as much as you'd like, but um, really developing new materials for membrane filtration to be more sustainable, uh, and, and more accessible for you know people, especially in the developing space, was mm -hmm. like an early goal of that research. It didn't end up there, and I'll tell you how that evolved. But uh, that really struck me as something that was relatively unique in, yeah. in that kind of uh, academic research sphere, and also something that was very interesting to me at the same time. So very attractive. You said that uh, water filtration isn't isn't very sustainable. Like I guess it's kind of, are you talking about just normal like city utility kind of water filtration, or what are we talking about here? Yeah, so the, you know, when you think about water treatment, um, really the sort of state of the art is, is what's called a polymeric filtration membrane. So if you think about municipal water treatment in, in most you know, municipalities, cities around the world that have, have that infrastructure, or a, a reverse osmosis you know, desalination plant. Not, you don't have a lot of those in Canada, but you have some on, in California and Florida, course, yeah, you know, yeah. Australia, you know, the hotter, yeah. more uh, arid re regions of the world. So there's a really good technology that, that has been developed over the course of 70, 75 years in, in mm. polymeric membranes to remove salt from water. Uh, and actually, even in terms of the energy efficiency of that process, it's, it's very, very strong. So if you think a bit of a science thing here, excuse me, but yeah. um, if you think about, you know, 
you have perfume floating around a room or salt water floating around a big tank of water mm -hmm. or salt floating around a big tank of water rather it, the salt or perfume wants to be like dispersed it's going to naturally disperse or diffuse around that mm -hmm. that container or the ocean for instance um and if you want to say collect that salt or, or perfume back into a, a smaller region you have to exert some energy to counteract that mm -hmm. that entropy that's mm -hmm. you know causing that stuff to disperse around that container yeah and so there's a minimum required energy anytime you want to do that. And so that what's what's driving the minimum required energy to separate pure water from seawater, basically. And you're fighting a process called osmosis there, and that might be a term that people are familiar with. Um, and polymeric membranes are very close to that minimum. They're like five or ten percent, you know, above the energetic minimum for separating salt from water. But that's not the main problem. The main problem is that they're also very fragile. So they clog, you know, everyone's familiar with clogging of membranes probably or, or similar medium media. Um, they clog very easily. They're very hard to clean. They degrade and usually have to be replaced every one to two years, you okay. know, on average, depending on how much pretreatment you do before the membrane. So typically you have five or six pretreatment stages of this even seawater, which is quite benign, coming into like five or six pretreatment stages. So by the time you get to the, the reverse osmosis membrane, it's only salt and water. There's nothing else in there. Um, otherwise, you clog it up almost immediately. It would be uh, pretty useless to use. So in that sense, they're they're efficient in the energetic and sort of, you know, techno-economic cost sense. But in terms of the, the usability or the, the viability and, you know, more demanding applications, um, they're, they're not very good, you know, across the board. So that's kind of what I mean by saying saying the situation is not ideal. I want to step back for a second and go back to your time growing up in, in Kamloops. I mean, Kamloops is a place where, uh, and you're going to describe way, with way more ac accuracy, but I mean, I always, uh, we often go to road trips down to, to the mainland and off the coast there, but um, we would drive past and through Kamloops, and well, it's wildfire central, right? Like yep. it's, and, and it's all wild, wildfire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was it like for you growing up, like just around that? Like, did you, did you, um, you, I mean, I mean, imagine that you would you would notice this or even be a part. I mean, Camus had a serious wildfire, I think, like um, maybe more than ten years ago. Yeah, yeah. I just drove by it. I was actually back visiting like two weeks ago, and I just okay. drove by that kind of hillside where, well, yeah. it's a lot larger than that, but yeah, kind of where yeah. it came over the top of a hill towards the highway. Yeah, and the trees are all still like you know matchsticks there. It's yeah. pretty pretty impressive to see. You know, we. I don't know if I described it. You know, we definitely noticed the smoke. I think it's something, you know, growing up in it, you kind of like, it's part of life. Um, I don't know if I necessarily myself ascribed it to climate climate change at that point. I was just sort of a fact of life. Um, you know, but these days, you know, down in the U.S., you hear a lot about California. You know, the fires there have obviously been just horrific the last few years. Like, a lot of people killed as well. So that really starts to turn heads in terms of, like, once disasters, you know, they always affect people, but once they start outright, like, causing loss of life directly, um, be it a hurricane or a tornado or a wildfire or drought, um, especially when it hits close to home, right? I think we as, as humans are really bad. I've had people ask me like, so when is this climate change stuff going to affect us? And I'm like, well, it's been affecting us for decades. It's just not affecting like us, us. Um, it's, it's the people who are living in disadvantaged areas and disadvantaged populations around the world that have been dealing with this forever. Um, and sadly, it's it gets worse for them before everybody else. So. The fact that it's hitting home now, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm hopeful that it definitely puts a lens over the issue or a microscope over the issue, and I, I hope that that results in more action. I mean, I'm not overly hopeful looking at politics these days. But. Yeah. 
Do you, do you think people are internalizing a little bit more? Like they're they're seeing that sort of uh, even if it's entirely directly, but they're seeing that linkage and and because this has been the anecdotal, but like the recent storms in Atlantic Canada, for instance, I remember watching the news and people getting interviewed and they're like, people weren't talking about climate change before, but our communities are starting to t- are talking about it. Like people see the links, but I don't know what's your What's your sense of that? You think you learn internalizing a lot more? Yeah, I think I think we are. Um, I'm also a little concerned. I don't, I don't not sure what your sense is. I mean, my experience here and now is that you know life is getting harder and harder for a lot of people. You know, in terms of like inflation, in terms of supply chain stuff. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, I mentioned I have about a one year old baby. I mean, the, there was a formula shortage here. There was like a, tyl- a baby Tylenol shortage. Yes. Probably a little bit for you guys too. Yeah, yeah. When stuff like that happens, I mean people tend to like focus in on the here and now and the me rightfully so um and that's just human nature and i think it's hard to trigger change on a level that has to be triggered um without broad sweeping legislation and so i think probably the most important thing we can do you know to if we really want to fight climate change is to vote you know for people who care about that and who are talking about taking big steps in that direction of course, we all want to do things like, you know, drive EVs, it's important and like, you know, take the bus, <laughs> not drive at all, um, eat sustainably and all that stuff, very important. But I think that needs to happen. But even more importantly, we need to have uh, legislators and governments who are actually going to act on this because it's, it's such a big problem that without that kind of response, it's a really tough thing to crack. How long have you been living in the States now? Uh, since 2013. Okay, so some time. So- um, I mean, you've seen, uh, obviously the change from Obama to Trump and now to Biden. Um, just, but compared to like Canadian politics and, and American politics, like, do you, I don't know if you're, a, if you follow and kind of participate in the political process in any way, but, um, yeah, what's that like? Like, what would you say is the difference? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I, you know, when I was in Canada, I was following more, you know, um, I, the U.S. politics is a bit spicier. So it, it's, you know, it's sort of captivating in a bad way. And, um, I haven't followed Canada too much. I mean, I talk to my friends and family still about what's going on. I I try to, to vote absentee when I can and educate myself on, on the decision there. Um, I mean, I think the U.S. has always been, you know, a little bit more, there's been a little bit more kind of anger, I think, in general. But, I, you know, I see it in Canada now, too, which is it's also up, all over sure. the world. It's not yeah, a U.S. Yeah. problem. It's like no. a human problem. Yeah. Um, you know, the U.S. is is always kind of at the front and center of you know, the global trends, right? So maybe that's part of it. Um, yeah, I think it. I think it comes from. I'm not an expert. I think it comes from a root of people having a really tough time. You know, there are places in the U.S. and Canada and, and everywhere else where, even though we're developed countries, like people are really, really struggling. You know, economically, socially. And there seems to be some sort of a vicious spiral there where that struggle creates animosity and you know, fear and anger and, and pain. And then that kind of spirals down into more more struggle and more animosity and more division. Yeah. So, you know, I've always thought that I've always been a, a fan of what Canada does in terms of the, the social safety net. And I think mm. I think that I mean, my basic theory is that can help uh, sort of stem the bleeding a little bit. Like if you have a social safety net in place, people won't be quite as angry, quite as scared, quite as, you know, um, you know, fearing for their livelihoods, for instance, and their families. Yeah. So I think that helps, but it's a long, challenging process to put in place for 
country like the US of you know very diverse of 350 million people, it's not mm-hmm. no small task. So, do you find like I mean, you live in Massachusetts, which is generally I would imagine, generally a liberal state, right? Yes. I mean, it's usually very democratic. Um, but do you find that even there that there's a um, I don't know a struggle in terms of like what they what folks see there as sort of liberal and progressive versus what maybe I mean, I mean part of Canada is also different from Alberta it's very different than Ontario of course but yeah um, or BC for that matter but um, yeah do you, do you sense that difference when you're engaging with your colleagues and people around you that there's this, their values are different or yeah I'd say Massachusetts is is very similar to Canada like I think mm-hmm. you've got a similar feel mm-hmm. um, you know culturally there are some differences but politically I don't think too many. I mean, just to give kind of a, a little bit of a, a backstory there. I mean, I went, I, I've been to this down south quite a few times, like Texas, mm. Georgia, Florida, and like the difference between Canada and Massachusetts is like zero compared to the difference mm. between like Massachusetts and those places. Okay. Um, so it's like going to a different country. Mm. But I, I think what does permeate is sort of the the feeling of it. So when you have you know different parties in power, you know, like for the previous four years. Mm where you just don't feel good about what's happening on like a national stage. Mm-hmm. That sort of, I think there was a lot of weight on people, you know, especially people who don't necessarily agree with those decisions and, and those directions politically. Um, yeah, I think even though it's not necessarily happening here and there's different kind of state protections here, there's stronger versus Canada, for instance, kind of more difference between states. Um, there's still that like air of, a, of like a pall hanging over you, even though maybe it's not affecting you directly. Yeah. Because it's still your country, and you still want to feel like you're going in a good direction. Yeah. I mean, just the just the squandered potential to me, you know, of sometimes of Canada, of sometimes of the U.S. Um, mm. How much we could get done if we actually were thinking, in my opinion, about the right things. Um, it's sort of the wasted potential, the wasted resources, and the, the wasted fighting back and forth. Um, I think it's 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 very frustrating. Being an entrepreneur in that kind of clean tech space. What do you think is the right role of government? Like, is it is it really getting invested? Like, in a, like I mean, Elon Musk has talked about this more recently, like with um, the Inflation Reduction Act that the Biden administration passed, and there was so much money that was thrown towards the support of like electric vehicles. He's like, just stay out of there. I mean, like you can interpret that in a number of different ways, right? Um, because I mean, Tesla's already has a huge market share. You know, maybe not doesn't want the support of other companies uh, to happen, but but um, yeah, what is what would you say being right in the in the thick of it, right? What's the what's the support that you would want to see from governments in terms yeah, of I mean, I think tech? It really is it really staying it out? Is it is it kind of like a market based policy, like a like a carbon price, or like yeah, what does that look like for you? Yeah, I mean, ideally, I, you know, you can tell I'm pretty biased. I work in the space. I'm I'm pretty into the environmental movement. Yeah. I you know definitely believe we're in climate change and all this. So yeah. my answer is gonna be different than some, but you know, I think. If you look at what the government subsidizes now, it, it's a lot of fossil fuels. It's like, you know, large scale farming, livestock, mm. um, stuff that's like pretty bad for the environment. So it's not that they're only into clean tech, it's that they're subsidizing a lot of things. And mm. ideally, if you did the analysis, which is almost impossible to do, you know, what, what does subsidizing clean tech mean for like saving lives and saving livelihoods? Ultimately, it, it means a lot. Like if you could equate dollars spent in clean tech in, towards like lives saved or lives improved or quality mm-hmm. of life improved i think that would be pretty stark and you look at the other side which is already happening and subsidizing fossil fuels and i'm not a person who's going to say that we shouldn't 
have any fossil fuels. You know, I think that's a bit of a naive point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, we all use them. We all need them. Um, but I think squandering the potential we have to be developing and building out the renewable infrastructure, which we have mm-hmm. at our fingertips, if we wanted it, is um, is a very bad way to go. So to, to sum it up, I would say I think government really does need to be subsidizing these things. Um, but I would also say, maybe maybe to Elon Musk's point, maybe not. He's, he's, you never tell with that guy. But um, that, you know, if you really want clean tech to be successful, and this is something we're trying to do right now, you have to make it not only sustainable, but also cost effective. Mm-hmm. So it has to be cheaper and also more sustainable. Mm-hmm. And then the market, you know, there's no decision to be made. The market will adopt that, just, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that technology. So that's that's what I think everyone strives for, who is, is working on, you know, new clean tech technologies. Mm-hmm. And it's a huge challenge. It's, it's very difficult. Um, and subsidies can, can help with that. Um, well, it's de- we de-risk that investment, right? Cost-effective technologies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I would imagine, like, just starting out, like, those subsidies, like, de-risk, um, you know, your investments in, in, in starting these ventures, right? So. Totally, yeah. So, I mean, we started, so I, I started a company. Basically, the progression was I, I worked on this filtration technology. Yeah. I uh, developed it in my PhD and then a short postdoc just a couple of years after the PhD in the same lab group and then co-founded this company, Citration, mm-hmm. with, with my previous professor, Jeffrey Grossman. He's a co-founder. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, re- what really got us off the ground was a few, few opportunities like that. We got some U.S. federal government funding from mm-hmm. the, the Department of Energy and from the National Science Foundation to two of the major kind of um, funding foundations or funding mm-hmm. uh, centers for early clean tech research. And, you know, without that, it would have been very difficult actually to to raise, you know, private venture capital funding, which mm-hmm. we ended up ultimately doing because we were able yeah. to hire people with that initial grant money, basically. So really yeah. important for Citration and a lot of other early, especially in the hard tech space, you know, software, you can kind of start it up a little bit cheaper because you just need a computer and some people. Uh, but in hard tech, you need to spend millions of dollars to kind of set up the lab space. You know, you're working with instruments, tools, um, a lot of materials and time. So it's important. The, the focus of citration, let's talk about that now. Yeah. Um, so comes out of your, your, your graduate work, start this company with this professor. What is, what is the wicked problem that you're trying to solve here with citration? Yeah, so... Let me just preface by saying that we didn't start out focused on this. I kind, okay. of, kind of mentioned we were initially thinking about, and I'll get to this pretty quickly, but we were thinking about drinking water. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went into then like industrial wastewater. So oil and gas produced water. There's a big problem there. Yeah. Um, still is. Uh, textiles, wastewater over in Southeast Asia is a huge mm-hmm. issue for a lot of countries over there and people over there. Um, so we did a lot of work there, you know, mainly based on some funding we had during the grad school period. But pretty quickly realized, you know, unfortunately, actually, that if you're treating you know very large volumes of water with very little value you know monetary monetary value uh, it's a very hard kind of first market to crack into because you mm-hmm. still have to kind of try to make money unfortunately mm-hmm. in, in the economy um so we started training our focus a bit more on applications where we still thought we had a unique sort of product market fit where our technology would add unique value yeah. it's very important obviously but but also where, you know, the the value of what we were doing was a lot higher economically, mm. uh, but that could still ideally have that impact because that was still important to us environmentally and societally. And so to get to your question, though, what we end up coming across is that uh, there's this massive issue uh, that's kind of coming up in the next five or 10 years in society, which is the ability to recycle lithium ion batteries. Mm. So primarily from electric vehicles, as you probably are aware, 
and others in, in electronic devices. But electric vehicles are by far, you know, much larger batteries. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> right now, there's no good way to recycle those. But around 2030, 2028, 2030, uh, we're going to get our, our huge kind of first wave of you know, end of life, dead electric vehicle batteries coming in. Sure. And there's really no good way to both sustainably and cheaply recycle those to reclaim things like lithium, uh, cobalt and nickel from those end of life you know, battery units. Now there is a way currently, and I can go through that if it's interesting, um, but what we're proposing to do is to drastically kind of shift the paradigm there uh, to a process that is, is much more efficient, much lower cost, and much more sustainable mm. as we need to start recycling more and more of those batteries. So how does, um, because I think, isn't there a lot of like uh, smelting involved right now with, with yes. uh, okay, maybe tell people how, because I, 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 I think that is a concern for people, right? Is, is, and I mean, many people are skeptical about EVs or solar or whatever. Yep. There, sometimes the skeptics come about, the conversation focuses on like, okay, this is great, but what happens with the solar panels? What happens with the batteries? And it's like, oh, you're just pushing that problem future, yep. you know, further down the road. Fair point, of course. And they're not, we, it's not wrong, right? No, it's, it's not it's wrong. It's a true just, thing, you know. Yeah. And I would say like, I'll get to how we do it today. I mean, 80% of the world's cobalt comes from the Congo. And mm. that's produced using, you know, unacceptable humanitarian, you know, child labor, yeah. uh, maybe even slave labor in some cases, mm. and, um, you know, very poor environmental practices. So there's a point to be made there. I think typically when you think about, you know, the off or offset of you know, burning fossil fuels, it's kind of a global issue. And mm -hmm. when you're you know, mining critical materials, it becomes more of a localized issue and a geopolitical issue. Mm. Um, so neither is better or worse than the other. Mm. The scales might be different, I think, um, but it is a fair point. I mean, we want to mitigate these impacts in any case as much as we can. And that's a big part of what Citration is trying to accomplish. I mean, if we can actually recycle these things that are already in batteries, we don't have to extract as much. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying we're going to replace mining ever, mm. but we can sort of mitigate the amount of kind of accelerated mining that has to be performed in the next few decades. So the way the, the recycling works today there's really two main processes you can use. So one is called uh, pyrometallurgical recycling. And so the pyro infers there the, the kind of the blast furnace, furnace the smelting mm -hmm. aspect. Mm -hmm. And so they, they just take the battery. And the interesting thing about lithium ion batteries is they're very dangerous. Um, even when they're like dead or end of life, they mm -hmm. still contain a lot of energy in the materials themselves. Mm -hmm. And those materials can be explosive. They can burst into flames spontaneously. Mm -hmm. And so in the pyrometallurgical route, you just throw, you don't care. You throw that whole battery into a furnace that's super, and just burn everything. Um, and that sort of diffuses the hazardous, you know, risk there. Um, and it also, but the problem is it also burns off a lot of the byproducts. So things like lithium are often burned off into the waste. Mm. And so historically lithium was not needed to be recovered, but now the price is going up quite quickly. So mm. it's of interest now, but you smelt down into like a, you know, a, um, a slag, essentially, the cobalt and the nickel and the other mm -hmm. metals, cobalt, aluminum, etc., uh, which are of value. And so then you dissolve that slag into an, an acid, typically, and you can do so chemical slag just like a hard, like something just like a... Like a molten hard... mass of metal. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. from okay. that like high, high temperature furnace. Okay. And you dissolve that down into an acid, typically, and, and mm -hmm. do then what's called a hydrometallurgical route. And hydro refers to kind of an aqueous or water-based chemistry. Mm -hmm. So you use acid, you dissolve the metal... And then you kind of slowly pick out all the contaminants one by one by adding certain chemicals and adding heat, creating kind of one sequential reactions to ultimately purify the cobalt and nickel back into the pure form. So that, you know, it works. People do it. Uh, it's been around for, you know, many decades. 
the other route that's gaining more popularity uh, and actually is, is developed straight from the mining industry. It's been used there for a long time. It is strictly a hydrometallurgical process. So I already mentioned that word in the context of the pyro mm -hmm. route, mm -hmm. but in hydromet or hydrometallurgical processing, you don't ever use the blast furnace. Mm -hmm. You kind of shred up the battery, you know, mechanically. That's also kind of a, a, a thing of art because you can't, you know, you have to shred it underwater and under mm -hmm. gas, it doesn't explode. Mm -hmm. um, so you shred it up mechanically, you, you kind of um, release all of that you know, chemical energy that way. And then you get a, a fine powder from that shredding and that's then dissolved in acid and you go through a similar process yeah. to extract everything. So, you know, it can be done. You can extract everything. The efficiency is low. It might be 35 steps to get to, you know, the final products and it's quite costly and non-sustainable. So what citration is doing, the real paradigm shift here is we have this membrane technology, which doesn't seem to really apply to this process. What we're able to do is actually put it directly into that, really acidic solution right after that powder is dumped into mm -hmm. the acid. Mm -hmm. So with no other treatment, we can drop our membrane in there. We actually, because the membrane is made of silicon, hence like the citration, silicon mm -hmm. filtration, mm -hmm. uh, we can run an electric current through the membrane. What that electric current allows us to do, and this is unusual for membrane filters, they're not usually electronically conductive. Okay. So what that allows us to do is now play around with materials like lithium, like cobalt, like nickel, from this incredibly you know, harsh acidic mixture that's very complex, mm. but pull certain things out, like those most valuable materials mm. with very high selectivity. What I mean by selectivity is just that we can say, pull out lithium and leave everything else in with a, a very successful rate of that kind of um, separation, if you will. So you'd still have to work though with, with these other processes to get it to that powder, right? Yeah, you'd have to grind up the battery, yeah. So like there are other routes you, people are exploring that wouldn't be too applicable to what we're doing uh, called direct recycling. And so there the aim is to sort of disassemble the battery more carefully, sort of keep some of those materials together in the same proportion, and then sort of recycle them or re rejuvenate them and recycle them or reuse them kind of without stripping them all the way down to the most basic level of, of the elements or compounds themselves in pure form. Now that, that could be really interesting. I think there's a place for that. The, the challenge there though, is if you think about, you know, all the different vehicle companies and battery companies, they're mm -hmm. all producing slightly different battery chemistries. Mm -hmm. And so it's quite difficult then to kind of maintain a certain chemistry from a given end of life battery and put it back into a different battery. Mm -hmm. It just won't work that way. So our, our kind of take is that that could be useful, but we're also gonna need to do, you know, recycle things all the way back to their most basic form, their purest form to start from the beginning as well. Yeah, I, I don't know if this, this might sound like a silly question, but like when it gets down to its purest form, like is there a quality issue there like compared to like the when you get the purest form of cobalt, nickel, or lithium from a mining process versus recycled versions of this? Is there any difference there in the quality? No, it's a, it's a really important question actually. So the battery manufacturers need, you know, ultra high purity because you know, batteries are such a sensitive mm -hmm. technology and device. Um, any kind of minute difference can throw off the, you know, the performance over a long period of time. Um, and so the, the question is really important. And so it, if you think about sort of a, a atom or a compound of material, mm -hmm. it's all the same at the atomic scale or the yeah. molecular scale. It's just about the purity to your point, like how much contamination is in there. So whether you're getting that, you know, compound or, or you know, material from the ground via mining mm -hmm. or from a dead battery, 
you can bring both of those things back to the same purity. Now, the question is how much effort, how much cost, and how many resources are required to do that. And typically, the nice thing about battery recycling, if you think about, you know, grabbing out lithium carbonate or lithium hydroxide or cobalt mm -hmm. or, or nickel from the ore in the ground, there are probably, you know, 50 or 70 different, you know, materials that are, are co-inhabiting that sort of ore. So it's actually a tougher separation process in some cases to isolate those things. In a battery, you do have variability, like I kind of just mentioned, but the list of elements that are in a battery are probably 10 or 12. Mm. And you usually know what they are. Maybe there's a range of composition or ratios, but you usually know what the, the kind of products are that you're dealing with. And so it's actually, I think, in my mind, maybe I'm a bit biased. I don't know as much about the mining space as I do about battery recycling. But it's a little bit easier to develop a process uh, to reclaim those materials in high purity form. The other piece is that they're often more concentrated in a battery. So what's already mm -hmm. happened is you've mined it from the ground, you've refined it, you've concentrated it, you put it in a battery, it's still concentrated when the battery reaches end of life in that kind of confined package. So in some sense, it might actually be easier uh, to get back to the original purity that's required. That's that's very interesting. With the with the pyro method, the the I guess the emissions that come out of that smelting process, like is it just dirty, dirty stuff or I Yeah, I mean it's yeah, it's definitely definitely you know, dirty. I mean, there's a lot of energy input requirement. I think that's mm -hmm. the main downfall. The the kind of off gassing of that, it really depends on how you're running your process. Again, I'm, I'm not an expert, but there are ways mm -hmm. to like scrub, you know, all the contaminants out of that right. before right. you put it out into the environment. Um, depending on whether that's done, you probably, you know, varies to what extent by, by operator. Um, so there are ways to make it, you know, relatively clean, mm -hmm. but the energy consumption is, is relatively high. And I think one downside there is it's harder to recover things like lithium because they're burning off in the, the, uh, the pyro process basically. Yeah. Cause your, can your technology be applied for, I don't know if you know, um, I know there's a few companies in Alberta that are, um, taking the wastewater brine from oil and gas production and then they're filtering out, um, you know, lithium out of that. Or, or can you imagine your tech, could your technology fit into those kind of solutions or not? Really? Yeah, very, very possibly. So I know there's one called like Summit Nanotechnology. I'm not sure if that's what you're talking about, but they're a great, really cool company working on lithium extraction. Yeah. I think based in Alberta as well. I've connected there's with e3 them. There's E3 Metals, I think is another oh, one. Oh yeah, or, yeah. yeah. I've heard of that name. Um, I haven't connected personally, but yeah, so definitely. I mean, anytime you have a kind of a, a challenging mixture where you have some kind of valuable material in there, we could probably be applicable. The citration technology, you know, there are a lot of technologies, to your point, that are doing this kind of thing. And so mm -hmm. it, when you have a, and this is like a more general message to all those aspiring entrepreneurial material scientists out there, when you have what you think is a unique material or technology, you know, that very well could be the case. But what will really tell you if there's value is finding if it, if it has unique fit somewhere, right? So if you can go out in an application and see sort of a path to creating more value in an existing, you know, application industrially mm -hmm. or societally, or if you're selling to customers like you and me, and that's a bit of a different question. But so we looked at that kind of thing. It may still be interesting, but we, we have to develop a little bit further than what we've gone so far in some technical areas. Um, and I think we settled on battery recycling because the conditions, the environment being so harsh, being that pH mm. one um, acidic, you know, leachate environment when, when mm. you dissolve that battery powder into that. And because we can uh, kind of withstand that environment, we can then drastically reduce the number of steps from say 35 to five to 10 steps 
to reclaim the same thing for less resources. And that's like really the main differentiating factor for us. We might be able to do something like sort of similar in say the oil and gas wastewater mm -hmm. uh, cleanup effort in Alberta and elsewhere, but I don't think the difference is as stark, I would say. And so the mm -hmm. competitive advantage is less. So you kind of want to start where you have the largest competitive advantage and then sort of work your way down the, the chain, mm -hmm. you know, value versus effort over time, basically. Yeah. Um... Yeah, that, that advice is is is, um, is very valuable about saying that you wanna you might have this incredible material that you've developed, but um, you gotta make sure it fits within some sort of applicable ecosystem that that either already exists or or is um, you know is being used widely. Did you was that some a hard lesson for you to learn, or did you kind of know? That okay, this is where I want to apply this membrane technology into this part of the battery recycling process. Like, yeah, I think very difficult. You know, it's still an ongoing struggle. You yeah. know, where we are today is far from you know commercial viability, far from being okay. a product. We're still on what we call the benchtop scale. Okay. So we're operating on kind of the leader scale, right? We need to yeah. get up to ultimately like the ton scale. Yeah. Um, to be in the commercial space, so. And I can talk about it if it's interesting, but there's this progression where you kind of demonstrate something on the benchtop and then you raise a, more money to do it on like the refrigerator scale, then you raise yeah. more money to go on to the semi-truck scale. Yeah. Um, there's sort of that progression that's kind of built into the clean tech or hard tech sort of space. Um, but the answer to your question, though, is, is definitely difficult. I mean, I was involved in a number of programs for academic people to kind of learn to be entrepreneurs a little bit before they made too many mistakes, um, before they raised too much money and wasted it all. Yeah. Um, but one, one term I like to use is I didn't invent this, but it's a, a good term is that most people coming out of a PhD or, you know, academic work who have developed this like very early stage technology are, you basically have a hammer and you're looking for the right nail to hit. So the hammer is sort of predefined by what you've developed. And there's a million nails out there, which are all, you know, representative of, of industrial applications. And for the most part, uh, where you could possibly, you know, be the best hammer to hit that nail, but you spend a lot of time like tapping around to try to find it. Typically the more efficient way to start a company is you have this nail that, you know, you want to hit, and then you go mm -hmm. think about how to develop the, the right hammer. Mm -hmm. uh, but by virtue of just life being as it is, that's not my situation. And so we want to have an impact with that hammer, but picking the right nail at an early stage is really important. And a lot of what I was talking about in terms of like probing different markets, you know, industrial wastewater, uh, we looked at the semiconductor space, the pharmaceutical manufacturing space, the food and beverage or nutraceutical space, um, petrochemical production. Uh, you know, you, the really important thing I would, I would say is critical for anyone thinking about starting something real is before you do anything, like go talk to the people who you are hypothesizing, well, maybe buy your product or work with you because mm -hmm. you really don't know what they want until you ask them. And I went through a whole bunch of programs that kind of trained you to do this and, and not to make assumptions and not even to bias those conversations. It's not like I come, if you're an expert in, you know, um, kinesiology, I don't come to you and say, would you want to use a, a knee brace that can like make people jump 10 times higher? Mm -hmm. I come to you and say like, Pesh, what are you, tell me about your day, day in the life of, of what you do. And, you know, talk to me about what, what upsets you and what you wish would be better in, mm -hmm. in your day to day life. It's only when you do that in a non-biased way can you really pick out, you know, what's actually needed in your life as a kinesiologist or Absolutely. in any other field that you're in. Um, and that's what we were kind of trained to do, you know, before spending a million dollars to develop a product that is actually useless uh, to anybody. So. Yeah. Did, I mean, going through this, like being this kind of entrepreneur in this, in this, you know, in this field that you're, you're taking on, 
a lot of risk, a lot of uncertainty, I would imagine. Like, were there times where you're just like, why am I doing this? Like, I should just kind of get, I can use my skills, my training, and, and somewhere else it's already established and, and probably get paid really, really well. Like, did you have those doubts or, or did you kind of already ha- always have this sort of entrepreneurial mindset of, of, of wanting to take on this wicked problem? Or, yeah, was yeah, that developed? A, like, tell me about that. It's a fun, it's a good question. I've thought about it a lot. Um, for me, it actually seemed, it's weird. It seems like the easiest path of least resistance. Um, and I think part of that is like, it's sort of familiar. Like I went to grad school, I developed this technology. It's all kind of, pro- of a progression. Mm, yeah. So it was never like a leap into something totally new, totally mm, unfamiliar. Mm. You know, a lot of what I'm developing personally is is very different for me and out of my comfort mm. zone, which I think is something I've always pushed myself to do. I don't know why <laughs> or why I really enjoy doing that, but you know, just like, Basketball Waterloo was out of my comfort zone, and so was the academic program and all of that. Um, but it is a lot of fun. You know, I think mm. the uncertainty, it's a good environment these days. I don't think I would have done this had I been mm. in an environment or a community that did not support this or where it was not sort of common. I saw a lot of good examples. Some of my lab mates in my grad school research group actually started a company about two years before me who were close friends. And so mm. I saw that it was I was fortunate to be in a place where I had a lot of mentors and a lot of good examples that showed that it was not only like possible, but that it was actually a really good way to go. Um, and the risk is certainly there. I mean, I think I'm, you know, a lot of us who are doing this are, are kind of pulling the wool over our own eyes a little bit because we're, we're sort of refusing to think about the likelihood of stuff not succeeding. Um, mm-hmm. And nowadays, the good thing is it's it's not cast, if you say you can, you can definitely fail, but it's not necessarily cast as a bad thing. Depends how you fail, do you fail in like a good way uh, you gave it your all and you built a team and you tried to develop this technology, you know, it's, it's, it would be a terrible feeling for that to happen. It would, it would be, you know, you'd have to you know, let your team go and all of that. It would be the worst thing ever, but ultimately it's looked upon as a learning experience. And so that, I think that culture of positivity around mm-hmm. trying something new, pushing the envelope, yeah. you know, going for it, uh, and, and the support that comes with it. Cause like it used to be that you would have to bootstrap everything, right? Like you'd have to go without a salary for years and like your yeah. family would be starving and, all those kind of horror stories, um, which I think people take like a weird pride in as well, uh, which is a totally different question. But nowadays, you know, I was fortunate in, in the Waterloo mm-hmm. community. I think it's really great there now as well, especially in the MIT community in the broader kind of Boston area. There are, mm-hmm. you know, a million programs to provide funding, to provide mentorship, mm-hmm. you know, networking connections to other investors and stakeholders. And so it hasn't really felt that risky, to be honest. Um, I'm also very fortunate my wife has a great job, so we're, we're very stable, um, you know. So the biggest risk, I think, to me personally is like the, the possibility of, of failure or not, not having the company be successful. Um, and that's like, that could, that would be crushing, but at least it's not like an existential risk. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, tell me about, I don't know, what's the, how many staff do you have in your, in your company? Yeah, so right now, including myself, we're, we're five full-time. Yeah. Um, we're, we're actually just interviewing for another, and we have a guy coming on in May who we hired nice. uh, about a month ago. So that'll be seven full-time as of May. And then we try to do the same thing that I did as a co-op student. We try to hire a lot of co-ops. Nice. Um, it's harder from Waterloo because they're Canadian, yeah. and then with the immigration stuff, yeah. it's tough. But yeah. we actually have one from Waterloo right now who's a U.S. citizen, so mm. that's pretty cool. Mm. And then we have a bunch from a school called Northeastern, which is based in downtown Boston. Mm. And they have a similar kind of five-year co-op program to Waterloo. Yeah. So we have usually four or five kind of full-time interns. So that puts us around 10, you know, employees yeah. day to day. So you're leading people. 
right? Like, I don't know right. if that, I don't, well, <laughs> you are, right? I mean, um, I don't know if that was something you ever saw for yourself, but, um, you're in it now. Like, what would you, um, what's your approach to leadership look like? Is that something you take? Like, how do you, is that something you study? Is that something you think? Like, tell me about that because I mean, some people take it really seriously. Some people not so much and they're just focused on, on the work. But I don't, I, I don't understand how that is possible. I think that yeah. you, when you're working with people, you need to focus on people and you need to be a people centered leader. But anyways, I'm curious, curious about you though. Yeah. And, and I mean, there's a whole spectrum of, of leadership you know, styles and abilities. And I'm very new. I mean, I think, I do think sports was helpful. So like, you know, playing in team sports, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I was never like a great captain of the basketball team, but that was at least you have some responsibility to try to lead people to some extent. This is different because I'm all by myself kind of doing it for the most part. Um, and I think the hardest part about it is that like, it's, I have a lot of different hats I have to wear in the company. And so I'd love to spend like all my time, you know, leading the team and like working with the team not mm-hmm. not even just leading but like being with the team mm-hmm. and getting their perspective I and mean, i think the style i you know i'm still very much learning at this but i think the style i'm trying to embody is one where i'm really empowering people mm-hmm. and listening to people a lot you know also you have to sometimes delegate right mm-hmm. you, you, you're a team where there's no leadership that's mm-hmm. that's bad but i think a team where people don't know why they're doing what they're doing they're just being told to do things uh, I think they lose passion and motivation really quickly. So mm-hmm. like all the passion I have for what we're doing that I communicated and like the reasons why I have that, I want to share a big part of that with the team and make mm-hmm. sure that they're also excited about what we're doing. Um, and I think another big, really important piece is to hire, you know, get really good people on the team. Mm-hmm. I mean, that makes it a lot easier Yeah, when you're not trying to put out fires all the time. I mean, we definitely have, you know, conflict in, in a relatively healthy way and friction and people have different opinions. I think that's actually really good that people feel empowered to share that. If everyone was just like kind of doing what I said they should do and not, you know, expressing them their, their own opinion or perspective, I think that's when you can get in a bit of trouble. And we've seen a lot of these kind of startups where they kind of go, you know, um, Theranos is an example where the CEO is just like, what I say goes and we're mm-hmm. gonna just do what I say and mm-hmm. we don't need to worry about facts or anyone else's opinion. I think that that's an extreme example, but it can go pretty badly. So, I mean, I think really trying to empower people and, and sort of lead by committee to some extent while still also kind of delegating at the same time. I don't want to mischaracterize um, your, your company and your business, but um, I'm just wondering about the challenge of like you're the founder of this company. You, you know, you're the one who brings the focus is really on this, this, this particular technology and this membrane. And you're trying to ensure that you empower your team through this process. But like, you're the guy. You're the guy who came up with this thing, right? This product, this, this technology. Um, you know, maybe the business expands into other areas. I don't know. How do you, how do you deal with that struggle? Because I, I don't know if you see it, but I would imagine like your staff that maybe there could be people who would be like, well, you know, I, I'd like to apply this expertise, but I mean, Brendan's the guy who created this thing, right? Like, um, how do they, how do they, what's the challenge there for them and for you to ensure that their voices are heard and, and, but also like, you know, um, that they understand that like you're so heavily invested in this because this is the thing you created. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it comes through in my, like the amount of time I spend and effort and intensity in which I like throw myself into it. I think people are, they get that feeling, but at the same time, you know, as much as you're the guy and maybe you just kind of started things out, um, 
it's really important to kind of shed that pretty quickly and be mm -hmm. like, you know, maybe I conceived of this initially and worked on it for five or six years before we all got together, mm -hmm. but I'm nothing without a team, right? Mm -hmm. Like I tried to do this for the first like half year, year of the company and it's impossible to run everything at once. And so I think the way you kind of shed that sort of aura on the, within the team is to give a lot of responsibility and place a lot of trust in team members and a lot mm -hmm. of confidence in them. And, you know, you share, you're always trying to kind of share the way you think about things, but you also don't want to pollute their kind of perspective too much because, mm -hmm. because I've been in this for 10 years working with this like very specific technology. I'm pretty biased in certain ways. Like I have a lot of blinders on as well, because sure. I've kind of conceived of it in a certain way for so long. And so even someone who comes as like a co-op student from, you know, third year of university can definitely contribute a perspective that I haven't thought about, mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of times I, I know the answer to the questions, but sometimes I'm, I'm thinking, wow, like I've never thought about it that mm -hmm. way. There's probably a lot of merit to, to that kind of perspective. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, everyone on the team contributes something that's very important. I try to like make that very obvious and uh, solicit a lot of opinions from people, regardless of the stage of the career that they're at. Was that something that you had to gradually adopt, like just that shedding and letting go of things? Or, or did you understand that you thought that like everyone has value in the process? I don't always know everything. Like, um, or did that sort of humility and, and shedding sort of happen over time? I mean, I think, I think you kind of know it from a factual perspective, but then to actually let go, I mean, it's easy to try to inspire someone to have, you know, passion for what they're doing. I think what's really hard is to say like, here's a big chunk of work that's really important for the company, like critical mission, you know, mission critical pathway here. Um, I don't have a lot of bandwidth. I need to delegate this to someone else and they got, they have to own this. And there's a lot of stress related with that because mm -hmm. that a lot of times can be fundamentally connected to the success or failure of the company mm -hmm. in, in at least a small way or sometimes a bigger way. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the team is great and they're capable of it, but I think it's, you really only know if you're capable of doing it once there's a really important thing and you're able to let that go. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't say I'm that great at that yet. And mm -hmm. as a result, I'm, you know, my bandwidth is, I'm always quite overwhelmed because I'm mm -hmm. trying to like shoulder all that stuff, but really I should be offloading it sure. onto the really capable team members as well. So I've, ma I've made small strides, but uh, I have a long way to go there as well. Yeah. Um, I want to I want to end up on balance, but I, I don't know if you heard this. Uh, we talked about Elon Musk before, but I, I would love to have uh, witnessed that time. I don't know if you heard about him talking uh, when the Model Three when they were trying to ramp up production, and he said there was a critical mission critical point for Tesla where he's like, if we didn't deliver by a certain time, like Tesla would have went under. And you know, there's stories of him sleeping on the shop floor and and being there all nights, you know, all hours of the night, that sort of thing. It would have been amazing to kind of, from a leadership perspective, watch that, right? Like how he would have interacted with his team, whether that was disengaging for the team or whether that was empowering and what that level of involvement actually was. Um, but yeah, when I heard those stories, it was just like, this is, um, this is a great sort of leadership study case, you know, like, a, yeah, I mean, what, what to do, because I also wonder about like what the lasting effects of, of that have been, right? Because you hear stories about how he's so tough on, uh, on his employees, but I mean, unless you actually work there, no, no, I'm not sure what the culture actually is, but um, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such an interesting question, right? Like our leaders best, do they get their best results when they're sort of a little bit crazy, mm -hmm. you know, like, 
if you're the craziest one there and you're sleeping on the floor of your office, um, is that is that good in the long run? You know, if he wasn't that crazy, would they be in that position anyway? Mm. Or or maybe they wouldn't have been there if he mm. wasn't if that wasn't the culture. Um, so it's hard to say. I mean, for me, certainly that's not my style. Mm. Um, I can't do that. You know, <laughs> uh, I'm just I, I can't. I can't operate that way person, personally, mentally, physically, and family-wise. Um, I also think, you know, if you're doing that as the boss, actually nowadays I see a lot of successful startups going the other way. Like the bosses try to take vacation, yeah. you know, three, four weeks a year to convince the employees they should also take vacation mm-hmm. because I'm sure you're privy to this as well in your job. Like the culture of, of work we have now in North America is, is one that is, um, you know, I think really detrimental to mm-hmm. mental health, to physical health, uh, to family life. Mm-hmm. So. I think almost pushing back against that a bit more, you know, there are sprints that you have to do to, to, you know, make progress, especially when it's badly needed, but you know, uh, you want to limit those as much as possible. I think you don't want to have your employees living in a world where people have to sleep in the office. I don't think, Um, but then again, sometimes maybe you do, I don't know. So it's, it's hindsight's 2020, but um, yeah, so that worked out well for them in that case. Yeah. Um, it gives me a lot of pleasure to know that you're you're relatively new dad, and you got a you've got a, a baby girl who's uh, just turned one. And so um, I remember, and I'm sure you do. When you, and folks wouldn't know this, but you helped me out with my proposal, Michelle, and you lit a bunch of candles, and I'll never forget that. Like the, I was thinking that, about that right before this. Yeah. That you that you support. I was talking to Michelle about this. That uh, um, I don't remember if we even crossed paths before you lit those candles, and when I came down to my basement apartment. I hope there was a bit of crossover because there were a lot of candles lit and <laughs> and that would have been a bad scenario. But it gives me a lot of pleasure. I think, I think we like, I think I, I didn't want to distract you because you were on your game, but I, I think I said like, you got this or something like that. Ah, okay, I think good. we did like rub shoulder. I think I waited until you were coming in good. and I was going out. Thank yeah. God that happened because I'm like, <laughs> that would have been not good. Um, but anyways, yeah, it was, it was, uh, I'm, I'm glad that you were, you were part of that, uh, part of that moment. So I appreciate, I'll always appreciate that. But just so, so much joy to know that you have a big girl and running this company. And I mean, it's great to know that your, your, your partner has a stable job, but like, Tell me about uh, what it's been like to be a dad and, and just sort of life, work-life balance and how you're trying to manage that. Yeah, really, really challenging. I mean, I'm sure, you know, all parents go through this to mm. some extent. Um, you know, it's not exclusive to parents either, people who have demanding work generally. Mm. I mean, but once you have that kid, you know, I think it's sort of a bit of a wake-up call for kids. Um, the first one probably is the most so. You know, wake-up call that you really want to be around and you really don't want to be, you know, sleeping on the floor of your office or mm. what, what have you. Um, you know, sadly, when you're with, like, when it's a partnership, you know, and you're both doing that, it sort of feels a little bit more acceptable sometimes because mm-hmm. you're both grinding. And that's, like I said, the work culture in North America here. Um, but then the kid comes and the kid's not, not grinding, right? They're, they're there and they need you all the mm-hmm. time. So I think it's a great wake up call. The other thing I would say, you know, obviously a lot of joy. Um, and a great thing about it too, you know, if I'm speaking selfishly is that it, it's sort of a meditative thing. Like I've always enjoyed, you know, and maybe a lot of people are the same way doing things, you know, I'm not a musical person, but playing music, you know, for me, it's yeah. doing sports, working out, uh, yoga, running, whatever, um, to really, or like woodwork, you know, really focusing in on something. It doesn't really matter what it is. It's like not your work and not like day to day grind to really get you in that zone and like, meditate in a way you know mm. whether it's like traditional meditation or just like doing something that's super focusing mm. 
Um, and I think it's the same with a baby. Like you're fully in the moment, you know, you're like dedicated to being there for them. You're like interacting with them, you know, trying to kind of hang on their every, uh, their every action and, and movement and sound. Um, and that I think is actually, despite being very like physically tiring and sometimes like sleep draining, obviously, I think it's really mentally rejuvenating because you get that like hundred percent focus when you're with your kid or kids. Um, and that, that helps a lot. And it also like, you know, you go back to the team at work and you're, you're, I think a little bit more confident in yourself. So like, oh, I'm taking care of a baby, so I can take care of these like 25 or 30 year olds, no problem. Um, who, who at least sometimes listen to reason and logic. So, um, yeah, I, I think a lot of great things, you know, obviously it places, you know, more demands on your time and your sleep and, and your resources, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's, it's been pretty awesome overall. Yeah. Cool. Um, shall we end up on these last two questions that I asked of you guys? Would that be okay? Yeah. So I forget the one, but I remember the other one. So okay. go ahead and yeah. what order you want. So, um, first question is our five for dinner question, dead or alive, who are five people you'd have, uh, dinner with and curious if you'd have them together or, or individually. Yeah. So that's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, mine are weird, but, um, I thought since you did provide the question in advance, I did look at it cause I know it'd be hard for you to answer on the spot, but. I think um, the one would be my, my grandmother, my mother's side. Mm. So she's, she's not around anymore, but mm. um, she was always like a really strong figure to me. And um, her and my grandpa actually started their own company way back in the day, like an import-export company cool. down at the uh, border in Vancouver there. So I just thought she was like a super interesting person to talk to. And um, it would be cool to talk to her these days now that I'm doing what I'm doing with a family and all that. You, you met her though? Like you got to spend time? Oh, yeah, yeah. Her. She passed away when I was like right when I was graduating college actually, oh, okay. but she was, she was a little sick for a while. So mm -hmm. kind of inhibited, I would say, I would like love to meet her in her kind of prime. Yeah. I think it would have yeah. been great. So that, that's definitely the first one. Uh, the others were hard. I mean, there's a lot of historical figures that I find really interesting. I'm reading some uh, biographies lately. Um, I think uh, Ernest Shackleton is a really interesting one to me. I don't know who so the, um, he was the guy exploring the South Pole, oh, among okay. other areas. Um, definitely a book I recommend. It's called Endur Endurance. That's mm. the story of him and his crew. Really quick synopsis. Um, he's probably the most inspirational leader I've ever like read about. And basically, he he was an entrepreneur too. He had to like pitch to all these people to get the funding to take an expedition down to the South Pole. Mm. Uh, they're going to sail all the way down there, and then they're going to like get on dog sleds and like dog sleds to the South Pole and, and plant a stake there. Um, and they got, basically got to the shore of the, the South Pole and got stuck in the ice with their ship. Mm. And the ship was crushed in the ice, and so they had to abandon it, and it sunk. And they had to abandon the ship with like everything they could carry in the South Pole in the winter and basically like push their little rowboats across the ice. Um, and they had some dogs, and they would like, you know, fish and try to kill, um, well, there's no polar bears down there, but mm. penguins and stuff. Mm. And for, I think it took like a year and a half, they were, they were down there and they eventually made it to like the tip of the, one of the, the capes down mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And they set out in a rowboat across like the tip of the South pole to this like whaling Island. And they every single man of that expedition survived. Wow. Um, and just like reading the story and, and every single thing that happened to them, you just talk about the Tesla thing, you know, if they didn't do this, then they weren't going to survive. Mm -hmm. They had like 20 of these things happen and every time they kind of pulled through. Um, so that's a really inspirational, like leadership story of, of just never ending endurance and optimism. So the, the book is called endurance. I got I got to look at it. Yeah. So I was thinking like other people, uh, you know, always been interested in like Winston Churchill and Abraham Lincoln, kind mm -hmm. of historical figures that 
overcame a lot. So I'm kind of reading some stuff on them, which is interesting. It'd be pretty boring dinner though, with those guys, you know, old white dudes. Um, so, you know, I was thinking like Robin Williams would be interesting. Uh, Michelle Obama is one I thought about being really interesting. Um, she's, you know, a cultural icon of the time and has totally transformed the way we think about, you know, all types of people, which is great. Yeah. Um, and example setter. And then, you know, uh, Jerry Seinfeld's always someone I've, you know, I think he's amazing. He's my favorite show. So yeah. that kind of combination. I think I named more than five, but that's okay. That, that group, I think. <laughs> Not sure how they would do together. Yeah. But certainly, you know, maybe together, maybe separate. Yeah. Yeah. Churchill and Lincoln, though. I mean, I think they were, Churchill was an eccentric figure, figure right? And uh, Lincoln, I think he was fairly quiet. When I think my understanding was. But... Yeah, I know less about him, but just like what he managed to achieve, I think was. Uh, just, I'm, I've always been interested in people who have managed to achieve, you know, just amazing things in the face of great mm -hmm. challenge, whether that's like a physical accomplishment or, you know, the kinds of divisions or, you know, I guess wars in some cases these people were able to overcome, uh, always impressed me. So trying to kind of learn from those kinds of accomplishments and apply them to my own. I mean, I'm never going to face anything like those people mm -hmm. faced, but I think there are a lot of lessons and inspirations we can draw from that. Have you been to D.C. before? No, I've never been, which is crazy. My wife has some family there. Okay. Um, I went on a, a school trip a long time ago and uh, had this amazing experience where uh, I was out with uh, some some friends there. At, it was like around 11 or 12 at night, and it was super quiet across uh, um, the National Mall and, and into where uh, the Lincoln statue was. And, we just sat on like the, the top steps in front of Lincoln behind us and like looking out at the Capitol and it was just so quiet and I remember having that feeling like okay I can feel the power of the United States like they, they really set that place up in such a way where you feel the magnitude of the power of that place um, but yeah to, just to have like Lincoln behind you looking over is I'll never History. forget that moment yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's something super special that's where I get to like back to what I said earlier, like the potential of the country, the U.S. is, is like, it's unlimited. Mm -hmm. I, I, in mm -hmm. some cases, I'm like, I wish we could be using that in different ways. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the history and the, the, the weight of it is really immense. So mm -hmm. I'm hoping, I can't believe I've never gone there. I'm not that far away. So <laughs> yeah. someday soon I will. Yeah, for sure. Um, last question. Besides the circle of life, uh, what do you know for sure? Oh, yeah, this question. I didn't get to think about this one. I... I really believe in the the power of humanity to kind of overcome, um, you know, since we're on this sustainability, climate mm -hmm. change, you know, remediation kind of stuff. I mean, obviously a lot of suffering happening, but I, I'm actually very optimistic about the power of society and humanity to like figure out a way that we can make this stuff work. And mm -hmm. that, that both applies to, you know, the environmental climate stuff, but also just I think making the world a better place in general for people to be in and it's not free of suffering certainly but you know i, I see a lot of there's a lot of negativity out there and i think rightfully so these days but at the same time you know i'm also optimistic i see a lot of work that's being done and you know one example is nuclear fusion you're mm -hmm. seeing you know uh, progress being made there it's still mm -hmm. early but stuff like that could be a total game changer and so i, I think there's a, a lot of good stuff to come i just hope it kind of outweighs the bad for sure. I love it. Um, Brendan, man, it's been really good talking to you, really good catching up. Uh, super proud of you. Just to just 
I mean, uh, I got to witness uh, the early part of your journey, not maybe from the academic side, but just even just your approach to, to how you took basketball seriously and the training, and, and I can see that translating into your into the way you describe your path and into your work. And so just really proud of you and, and uh, glad that we were able to connect today, and I wish you nothing but the best in, in your endeavors and your company. And um, what an incredible problem to try to solve, and, and I'm sure you're going to be a part of other big problems that we need to solve. So um, just appreciate oh, yeah. your time today, and and um, yeah, just thanks for thanks for joining on the show. Yeah, very much likewise. I mean, obviously very proud of you as well. It's I'm really happy that we're staying in touch here, and I, I think the only thing we missed tonight is is a beer. Yeah, we're sharing between absolutely. us. So. Yeah. Next time I'm in Edmonton or you're in Boston, just let me know. And, I, and, I'd love uh, to come down to Boston, man. I've never been that part of the States. Yeah. And yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, you've got a room to stay in, so anytime <laughs> you want to come down. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, well, thanks so much, uh, Brendan, and thanks to everyone who's been listening today. And um, subscribe and, and, and stay tuned for the next one. And uh, we'll see you later. Brendan, just stick around. Got to keep talking to you for a little bit. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone. See you later.